0: I'm Marjorie Malpiti, and my guest today is Dr. Marianne Davis, a professor of psychiatry at the UMass Chan Medical School and a director of two centers at the school that are instrumental in supporting young people with behavioral health conditions. Hello, Marianne. Welcome to the quadcast. Hello, Marjorie. Thanks for having me. I am so glad to have you on today. Why don't we start off by understanding a little bit more of the work of both ISPARK, which is your acronym, and Transitions ACR which I'm going to now actually fully pronounce for everyone, Implementation Science and Practice Advances Research Center and the Transitions to Adulthood Center for Research. That's a lot of words, but I'll towards great stuff. So why don't you tell us a little bit about both of these?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to, Marjorie. Thank you. So iSpark is a broader research center. It is a research center of excellence for the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health, which funds its infrastructure. And it houses researchers who are very much focused on improving the lives of people of all ages who struggle with their mental health and involves various specialty populations that people have focused on. One of our investigators focuses on people who are deaf, who have mental health, behavioral health needs. There are the folks who focus on the justice system, and it goes around in various specialty areas like that, as well as generally people struggling with mental health conditions. So that's the broad Center, we have a focus, as our name would suggest, on implementation science, which is as we develop evidence-based practices, how do we put them into common practice in a way that keeps the practice true to its original form that was proven to be effective. And so we have a, a specialty practice in that area to help programs do that. And the other, I would say, major characteristic of iSpark generally is that we really strive to encourage our investigators to use stakeholders as partners in their research. And so the center itself has several stakeholder community boards or advisory groups that help shape the research questions that we ask, that help guide the data collection, and very importantly, help share the findings from that research. And that's something that's shared across iSpark. So that's the big picture of the, of the larger center. And then within iSpark is the Transitions to Adulthood Center for Research. And that center, as the name suggests, is a group of investigators that focus on using the tools of research to help improve the lives of people who are living with a serious mental health condition during the transition to adulthood. And there are a variety of topics within that. We have a, a center within that center that is focused on education, training, and, and entering work life. During this stage of life, there are other research projects that are focused on other aspects of life. We have some, for example, clinical trials of an intervention to help young people who are involved with the law who have mental health conditions to essentially stay out of trouble, but also get their mental health addressed and help them in their moving into adulthood in those functional areas that, that help keep people moving forward in a positive way. Within the um, smaller center within the ACR is a research project in which we've developed a peer coaching model. And we're in the middle of doing a a large test to see just how effective it is.
0: And if I understand it, you had done quite a bit of work on supported employment, right? But also with the college-based program, it's similar in that you have mentors and coaches that work with students throughout their education trajectory, correct?
1: So the the Past project is a coaching project. And it's focused right now on students who are in their first couple of years of, of college with the idea of helping them develop skills that will help them persist in their goal of graduating from college as they move into their more senior years. And so we have juniors and seniors who are coaching freshmen and sophomores in that program. We're in the middle of still collecting data. We did have some preliminary findings, which I think I, I shared with you earlier, which were very encouraging. It looked like the, the program was having a, a positive benefit specifically, in a, a variety of the skills that that students need, and we're hoping with a larger trial that we'll also see an impact specifically on them, essentially staying in school and succeeding there.
0: Which is great. And, and let's turn to that topic, because you have a new initiative out that I that I want to talk about today. We've spoken before about this issue, and I'd like to get your thoughts and see if there's progress being made in addition to really interesting, innovative pilots like the program that you have there at the UMass e. Chan School. But there's so many gaps that exist in supporting students with serious mental health conditions, it seems, on campus. And, and we learned this from our conversation in the article that I had done a year ago, where I really delved into this subject. And it was a bit of a surprise for me, even who has covered these topics for a long time. But it seems to me that there's not enough sort of examination of just how difficult it can be for students with serious mental health conditions to pursue through to completion at schools. And and again, so many gaps there in terms of what the university can provide. You know, this remains, again, a vital area for improvement. And I guess I just want to get your take on, are we doing better in this? And what's really at stake here?
1: It's a big question. And, you know, what is at stake really is is our future. The majority of young people, at least start college. And college is what we know in the general population is a place where there is a kind of a line in the sand between the haves and the have-nots. So it's incredibly important that when young people start down the path of getting a, a two or a four-year degree, or even some post-secondary training, whether it's at college or not, that they succeed in their goal to, to achieve that because it makes such a big difference in, in their lives in their lifetime earnings going forward, in the quality of the jobs that they can get going forward. And as one might imagine, during an economic downturn like we've had during the pandemic, having a college degree is a buffer against a lot of the loss of employment that occurs. And so really is in many ways just in terms of thinking about the well-being of young people today, thinking down the road for them and their partner in our society is really an important investment and important that they succeed. And when we look at the numbers of young people who are in college, who are struggling with their mental health the healthy mind study took a look, they take a look annually at, at several hundred colleges and universities to get a, a picture of youth mental health and kind of what they're accessing and what they're struggling with. And even before the pandemic, 45 to 50% of students reported that their mental health had interfered in their academic activities during the past, I think it's a four-week period. And so it's a very prevalent struggle that people have. And There's other research that shows that students who have particularly serious mental health conditions, that they're less likely to complete their college education. And one of the, I would say, impediments then for them is that they've often taken out loans for that college education. And so now they're burdened with repaying those loans in the absence of having the college degree. And one of our researchers, Catherine Sabella, has documented that in some of her research. That is a prevalent theme. So there's a lot at stake. For, for us essentially not finding good supports to help students who struggle with their mental health to complete their higher education.
0: So let's talk a little bit about policies and procedures that can help address what you just identified as a huge issue, not just for students and for colleges, but for all of us on our hope to have the most inclusive workforce that we can. Part of this has to do with the way colleges What their cultures are, what the messages faculty get, and faculties actually—the role of faculty—is we've seen through our own research is a really important dynamic in college student mental health generally. So I want to talk to you about the video series that you recently released, which instructs faculty with research-based information how to support students with mental health conditions. So I guess I'll start with what what was the goal of this initiative? So I I think the
1: goal of of this initiative is. very much what you found in your own research, which is that college faculty often have misperceptions about mental health and mental health in their students, that while there has been sort of a, a general push through suicide prevention activities and through trying to ensure that college students can receive mental health treatment, which of course is incredibly important, what we really felt was lacking was tying it back to their academic progress and that helping a student with a mental health condition succeed in college is uh, much broader than thinking about are they connected to treatment. And so it was with wanting to help faculty understand the nature of mental health conditions, specifically how it can impact a student's academic progress, and then specifically what they can do to help students ensure that they've got the kinds of supports to help their academic progress occur. We wanted to make videos that were informative. From a variety of perspectives, really focused on what faculty have both expressed an interest in, in getting to know more about, and that we've uh, heard from many folks that that many faculty could benefit from a, a bigger picture along these lines. So that's really what stimulated our desire to put these videos together.
0: So I would I would agree with all of that, Marianne. And it's interesting the faculty survey that we did indicated that faculty were in fact involved in speaking to students one on one in fact about their mental health which sort of busted through this myth that like faculty has nothing to do with the emotional side of students and i think particularly since the pandemic that's just not true we also learned that the majority of faculty would welcome more instruction and i think that was mm-hmm. part of the problem i think for a long time um you know colleges and universities were sort of saying particularly on the academic side well you know that's not their job and there's there was a real gap in like training and instruction, and maybe even the message coming on from high that, you know, this is something that that you need to be thinking about. So one of the modules, which I thought was interesting, was about accommodations, right? This is a big issue in college student mental health. We often hear from students of the struggles that they have with faculty and understanding their mental health. And this has huge influence, obviously, in their ability to thrive academically. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about the accommodations challenge, because this seems to remain a pervasive problem for for students.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to talk about the, the accommodations challenge. It has many, as you've pointed out, many dimensions to it. So there is a group of young people after they enter college who will develop a mental health condition for the first time. And for many of them, they are not aware that they're not aware of what accommodations are. They're not aware that they would qualify for accommodations or what accommodations can do for for them. And so there's that group of folks who just don't know that it exists. There's also the group of students who enter college with a pre existing condition, and they might have gotten special education, which in their transition planning, which is legally federally mandated that they get transition planning should be made aware that they could continue to get accommodations in college. But the first thing is that they, rather than in when they're in high school, it's a right that the school has to provide them with it. And the school has an obligation to identify the need. Once you're in college, you have to ask and you have to provide some documentation that assures the Office of Disability Services that you, in fact, have a qualifying disability. And then Uh, there are the requests for what kinds of accommodations would be helpful to you. And so it's partly that there's a group of students who would come over from high school with the expectation potentially that they could get accommodations, but without the knowledge necessarily that they now, they hopefully with the help of their parents, if, if that's helpful to them as well, but they on their own can request accommodations, but they won't be made automatic. And that they then have to kind of knows something about college to see what accommodations might be helpful to them. So it's no longer just about being in the classroom, which is often what a, a high school accommodation is is about. It's also about participating in the community that is a college. And so there can be accommodations around housing as, as well as in terms of academic performance. So there's that group. And then we also know that in high school, the majority of students with a serious mental health condition, over 90 percent. Of that population are not served by special education, and so that population is they may be entering with a pre-existing mental health condition, but they have no experience of requesting a co- for accommodations. So there is you know that education piece to be done as well, and then there is just the for young people who have had accommodations that they have had maybe a special education programming. There is simply the desire as they enter college to to want to not need those accommodations anymore. They just want to fit in with their peers. They don't want to ask for anything special. College is different. Maybe they won't need it. There's a belief that, that you know this might, might be a whole new start without the need for accommodations. And so students sometimes, having had accommodations before, will opt to enter college without requesting them. And so sometimes for those students, and for some of them, I'm sure that they they are able to be successful. but for many of them, they will have some time in the college experience where they then kind of hit up against a wall and and realize that they need supports and then go and request the accommodation. So that's all kind of describing sort of the population of students. Then if we take a step back and say, well what about disability services offices that one of the things that we have found and Marjorie, you may have found this in, in your work as well, is that, some disability services offices just aren't as aware of what kinds of accommodations students who have mental health conditions might need. And so there are the very common accommodations. A student might come in and, and request accommodations, and the student themselves might not, not know exactly what they need. But they have a mental health condition, and very quickly there might be the offer, of, well, you could get extra time on tests and maybe extra time on, on assignments, those kinds of things. But test taking is one of the most common accommodations. And that may be helpful to some students, but there's not a real knowledge about the different ways in which students with different kinds of mental health conditions or different experiences of their mental health conditions, what accommodations they might need. And so students can experience their Office of Disability Services as not being helpful and and maybe even having some common misperceptions about mental health and what students' needs are. And so they don't approach or they approach and it doesn't feel supportive and they may not actually go for the accommodations that they need. And then again, you have students who may be having an experience with mental health and they don't know that that's what the experience is that they're having. And who is the person that they're talking to might be faculty. It might be somebody in their residence hall that's having that conversation with them. And that's somebody who can help them understand that what they're struggling with maybe their mental health and be able to refer them. Um, but then the connection then needs to be made to the disability services office. And often then with some supports around them to be able to request, you know, here's what my disability is. So it's a step from first recognizing that you may have a mental health condition to identifying that your mental health condition qualifies for getting disabilities and then putting in that request and working with the Disability Services Office. And then the final step is the Disability Services Office may even have some great suggestions or agree to the accommodations. And then the student themselves have to go to the professors or the faculty who are offering the classes that they're in to specifically translate that accommodation request into that classroom's assignments and structures and curriculum. And that, of course, requires self-advocacy which can often be difficult for students in part because of the the discrimination against people with mental health conditions that occurs or the misperceptions about mental health conditions and so there are lots of things that feed into a very complex issue of trying to help students with mental health conditions request and get accommodations and have those accommodations enacted appropriately in their coursework that that can make this, that makes it the struggle that it is.
0: So I think the word I want to seize on there is complex. This is a very complex issue. So a couple of things there. One is it's difficult for anyone. And I would think to have to advocate for yourself or sort of they have the burden of proof on themselves in order to access the accommodations they need. And to your point, they need help. Students themselves may need help in even understanding that. So it is a very complicated issue. I guess what I'm gleaning from what you're saying is you can't really leave this to one department, right? It's got to be something that is supported in many different domains, certainly within the classroom. So again, back to the appreciation for these videos, the need for faculty to understand what you just told us, I would think is huge and would go a long way in really alleviating some of this burden of proof. That the students experience, and also that the faculty experience. You know, so it's not just that we do hear a lot that there's faculty resistance, that there's there's misinformation, there's suspicions around who's telling the truth around their conditions, and all, all sorts of really unhelpful things. But for the most part, faculty probably want to help. But again, it seems like there's just this big information gap that exists.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. It's. It, I think there is all of those. <laughs> (laughs) complexities to to faculty being involved in helping students succeed in their class through accommodations. Some of it is sort of misperceptions about accommodations, that that it's not there to level the playing field, but to give these students an advantage. And and that's a misperception about accommodations. So there's there's that aspect to it. There are many misperceptions about what mental health is. I know in the videos, there's a, a young woman who's describing her experience of Typically, starting off the semester, really excited to be in her classes, really enthusiastic, participating in every way that is available to her in her classes. And somewhere along the line in the semester, her mental health starts to uh, struggle in part because of the stress that comes along as people approach midterms or compounding demands on their time. And so she starts to be less involved and then can get into sort of an experience of then feeling that she might be a disappointment to the faculty or the faculty might be wondering, you know, what's going on with, you know, why has this person stopped participating so much, but not really knowing what to do? And it's that kind of experience, I think, that these videos really speak to, which is there are lots of ways to have conversations with students around their mental health, with the most helpful being ones that are very open and non-judgmental and just kind of inquiring as to, is there some way that that I can be helpful without saying, how come you're not doing as well in my class, which would be a more judgmental approach. So I, I think that one of the big benefits that has come out of these videos was having both students describe their own experiences, having faculty describe their approaches, which are, are marvelous to hear from them about the various ways that the very caring faculty have developed to try to be helpful to all of their students, many of whom have mental health conditions. And then some, some from some real experts who really can put the period at the end of the sentence for just in terms of really bringing home the information about what's so crucial that for, for faculty to understand about helping their students.
0: And imagine that demand for the videos would be high right now, given the pervasiveness of mental health conditions in general when what students are reporting you mentioned the healthy mind study and the anxiety depression levels and the isolation and the lack of belonging that we're starting to see, the loneliness. I think this is the perfect time to be providing the resources such as this. And speaking of, how is it that faculty can get hold of these resources, Marianne?
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing to know about these videos is it's an absolutely free resource. Anybody can uh, take a look at them. If you Google UMass Transitions ACR, that will take you to our homepage. There's a lot of resources there. But on that very first page on our homepage, there is a direct link to the College Faculty Guide to Academic Supports for College Students with Mental Health Conditions.
0: It's just a terrific set of narratives that I think are extremely helpful for this critical topic. We don't have a whole lot of time left, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about the bigger picture. These are very practical resources, not to put you on the spot, but your opinion about what more can be done. I mean, does higher education, leadership have more of a role to play? I mean, it's great that faculty are getting educated. And as you said, there are many caring faculty being very proactive about this. But do we need to be giving stronger messages from on high?
1: Yes, absolutely. That's an unconditional yes, we do. Because there is only so much that faculty can do on their own or that any individual office of support can provide on a campus. It really needs to come from campus leadership. And I think the most effective changes for students have come from campus. That have taken a whole campus approach to mental health. Quite honestly, attending to the mental well-being of a campus community includes not only caring for students' mental health, but also for faculty and staff and, and other employees. And I think you probably have shared the resource before for the Jed Foundation, which provides a lot of guidance about how campuses can be mentally healthy, which have all kinds of guidance around helpful policies, conversations to be had, and really making an open conversation about mental health needs. And mental health wellness is really where the conversations need to start. And in part because there has been so much discrimination and misconceptions about what mental wellness or mental illness is, that one of the first steps really is to remove those kinds of biases and misunderstandings so that faculty and students and, and staff can all have open conversations about what would be helpful to all in making progress in their lives
0: while they're a member
1: of the campus community.
0: If we can start there with the community of caring, then that helps with the individual efforts, as you said, whether it be faculty or it be disabilities offices. But if everybody is sort of cycling in the same direction and it comes to improving, you know, really the well-being of the whole campus ecosystem, it makes that a lot easier. So great, great point. Couldn't agree with you more. Dr. Davis, thank you so much. Good luck with all the great work you do at iSpark and Transitions ACR. I'm sure we're going to see more great resources coming out of your center. And again, thank you so much for being on the podcast and come back soon.
1: Marjorie, thank you
0: so much. It's been such a
1: lovely opportunity to talk to you. Great. Take care.
0: This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to Institute.org where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.